Okay, we're a couple of days before Rosh Hashanah. So just to, to take a moment to try to say something in a way that it'll penetrate our hearts so that we can come to the Yom Adin with a with the appropriate attitude and hopefully with a hashkafa that will enhance our yantif. In, in Yiddishkeit, there's a certain there's a certain duality to Rosh Hashanah. Uh, on the one hand, Rosh Hashanah is Yom Adin. Yom Adin is serious business. A young man. I don't want to say any details. A young man left me a, a message this morning. He had a to say that he had a hard year would be an incredible understatement. He went through crazy tragedies, uh, terrible, terrible things, and and his 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 feelings about Rosh Hashanah are. I don't have the right words. You know when something is so painful that there's no words for it? He had such a year. He's, he has... To say that he's not looking forward to Rosh Hashanah is... It's so much deeper than that. It's, uh, for, I can't imagine what it would be like for him to say the words of Unusana Token. For him to say the words, you know, who's going to live and who's going to die, given the things that he went through this year, he's, he's overwhelmed by Rosh Hashanah, and there's a certain emas adin, there's a certain natural fear of judgment that we that we have, or that if we don't have, that we aspire to have. And that's one very meaningful attitude that we're supposed to have on Rosh Hashanah. There's another very important attitude on Rosh Hashanah, and it's it's the exact opposite of that. It, it's it's as Nehemiah said when Klal Yisrael realized when they read the Torah. And Klal Yisrael realized that they weren't keeping the Torah. And on the day that they read the Torah, it was Rosh Hashanah. And listen what Nehemiah said to them. Go eat fatty foods and drink, you know, your sweet drinks. The shilchu manos and send, send food to other people. Those that don't have. This day is, is, is kadosh to Hashem. And don't be sad. The joy of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is your strength. So Nehemiah is saying to Klal Yisrael on Rosh Hashanah, don't be sad. Don't be sad. This is not a sad day. So it's like, how do you be exceptionally serious and living with the fear of the judgment of Rosh Hashanah and at the same time, how do we... How do we rejoice? How do we have a yantav? How do we get dressed up and eat delicious foods? How is it possible for us to contain these two things in one day? This is what David HaMelech referred to in Tehillim when he said, that a person has to tremble, on the one hand has to tremble, and on the other hand, HaKadosh Baruch Hu is saying, but tremble with rejoicing, that there has to be this duality. How do we live with this duality? So I want to give you the simple answer first. And then hopefully a much, much deeper answer. But I want to give you the simple answer first. So uh, I'll share with you a good story. This is a true story. You know when you get your license and your parents tell you not to speed? Yeah? Yeah. yeah. It was cute when they said that, no? Like it was, uh, 
It's like, but I'm, gonna, but I'm trusting you that you're really not going to, I'm like, okay. Like, I don't know why you're trusting me, but, you know, L'chaim, sure, why not? So my parents, you know, I was a five kids, five towns kid growing up, so I got a car, Kamuvan, as soon as I got my license. And uh, I lived, anyone here from the five towns? Okay. And uh, anyone here from Lawrence? Okay, so I think I'm better than all of you then. Because... <laughs> Only if, if there was somebody from Lawrence, I would say we're equals, but everybody else. Anyway, so, um, I, you know, the five towns have a ranking, depending on where you're from. Am I wrong? Not even, Not a, little. even a little bit, right? Okay, so I was a Lawrence kid. So I grew up in a place called, I grew up in a place called Harborview. So I don't know. And that's like, even, that's even within Lawrence, there's levels, right? So Harborview is nice. So Harborview is on the, is on, Harborview is off, off something called Rock Hall Road, okay? And... I don't know how it is today, but there was a cop that would sit at the corner of Harborview North and Rock Hall Road. Still there? Still there. Still there. So, so that, this cop, he would sit there with his, you know, with his radar gun, and you would come off of 878, and you'd be speeding down Rock Hall Road, and he would nail you. And so I'm, I'm coming off of Rock Hall Road, and I'm, I'm going fast, and, uh, and I get to that corner, and I see the cop. I immediately, you know, you like slam on the brakes, but you know it's too late. Like, he's already got you. And there are certain cops, you see them, they're like, you know, just kind of like doing this, and there, there are the aggressive, you've met the aggressive cops, they're like, you know, like, like you're not sure if they're going to kill you or like get the radar gun, you know, and so like, here's this guy, and he's, he's in that four-point stance, and like he's, and angrily, he's like side of the, you know, the emotion, like he's already got like serious anger, so he pulls me over to the side of the road, and he's like, you know how fast you were going, and I'm like, Sir, I have no idea how fast I was going. <laughs> and, he's, and he kind of goes back and he gives me my ticket. And I live literally three houses away from where I got the ticket. Okay? So he gives me the ticket. And I'll be honest with you. I'm, of course I'm afraid of the cops. Of course I'm afraid of the penalty. I'm much, much more afraid of my parents. <laughs> much, much more afraid of my parents. I'm going to go. I know it's going to I'm going to go in. And you have to decide who you're going to tell first. You know, like, do you tell mom first or dad first? Every kid makes that cheshbon. Because our parents think that we don't know them. We know our parents very well, right? So it's like, like certain things you go to dad for, certain things you go to mom for. So I knew this one you go to mom for. In general, dad is lighter, but in, like, this one you go to mom for. Because dad is, like, more serious about serious things. Like, mom was more serious about school. Dad was more serious about real life things, right? So mom is like... Okay, Dad, I got in big trouble in school. He's like, okay, let's figure out how to tell your mother. But like, if you're caught speeding, you got to go to mom first. And she's like, okay, we have to tell your father. So I went to my mother. I was like, I just got my first ticket. And you say your first, right? Because it's like, not because it implies a second, because it's like, hey, I haven't messed up so badly yet, right? So I get my first ticket, and my mom's like, okay, look, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna suffer the consequences. Life has consequences. You're gonna get points. You're gonna have to pay for it. Whatever. Fine. Say there. So I went to my dad, not so bad, you know, like, that's a stupid thing to do. I, I know that. That's a stupid thing to do. Okay, but like, we all, you know, kind of whatever. So I got, Baruch Hashem, the cop gave me a 57 and a 35. 57 miles an hour and a 35 <coughs> mile an hour zone. And I know that because 54 is the cutoff, meaning at, a, at 54 you get a certain amount of points, and above 54 you get a larger amount of points. So I knew that I got 57, I knew that I was like, shoot, I'm going to lose points. So... I've already come to the conclusion I'm going to have to pay a lot of money for the increase in insurance. I know it's going to be an expensive fine. But the only thing I'm thinking is maybe I won't get too many points on my license because it's Nassau County. Now, those of you who are not from Nassau County, I want to explain to you the way this goes. In New York City, if you get a ticket, so they actually care. In Nassau County, they just want your money. So 
So I'm like, maybe they're going to like give me less points, but I know for sure it's 57 and a 35. I know for sure I'm done, but maybe they'll give me less points and like knock it down and just make me pay more money because at the end of the day, I know the county just wants my money. So I come in. It's, I've never been in the Nassau County courtroom before. I come into the courthouse and I'm sitting there and there's a whole group of people and I'm like one of the last people to get called. And I walk into the room and it's me and the prosecutor. And the way it works is like, you speak to the prosecutor before you have your case. So I walk in and there's this prosecutor, slick back hair. I remember he was wearing like an olive green suit. And like, obviously this is not the most successful prosecutor if he's the prosecutor for the Nassau County traffic court. You know, you're not talking about like, you know, one of the great lawyers ever. And he sits down with me and I sit down and I'm like, okay, this is serious business. And he looks at me and this is what he says right away. He goes, are you an idiot? And I, <laughs> I was like 20 years old. I didn't know to be offended or not. So I'm like, excuse me? So he's like, you live three houses away. You know that the cop sits there the entire time. So I'm, I'm thinking on my feet quickly. So I'm like, well, that's actually part of my defense. Because I, I will admit that I was speeding, but I don't think I was going 57. And I wanted to try to see if I can get it down to under 54, because I want to get less points. So, so I said, look, I, I was speeding, but I wasn't going that fast. And I know, like, I know that a cop sits there. Why would I ever be going that fast? And he looks at me and he goes, what is this, moda bemixas? The guy wasn't wearing a yarmulke. Moda bemixas, for those of you that don't know, is halakhic terminology, that if you admit to a little bit of it, you're basically admitting to the whole thing. It's just your way of lying. So he goes, what is this, moda bemixas? So I was like, like, I didn't know who I'm dealing with, but I was like, no, but Migo that I could have said I wasn't speeding at all, believe me when I tell you that I was speeding a little bit, which is a different halakhic argument. He cracks up and he's like, oh, I see you know how to learn. I'm like, who is this guy? So I'm like, like, I'm like, what is, like what is your deal? He goes, ah, oh, I went to Yeshif Rakwe. So I was like, okay, I got it. It was like one of these Yeshif Rakwe dropouts who like went off the dark and became a lawyer, you know? I'm like, I get that. I was one of those kids. So I was like, uh, you know, like we're hocking back and forth. I'm like, did you know Rabbi Rothman? He's like, oh, I used to get thrown out at school by Rabbi Rothman. I was like, me too. You know, so like we had this like whole like very nice back and forth. So he goes, look, it's your first time. Um, I want you to plead down to driving with your door open, which is a $50 fine. So I was like, deal. You know, like, uh, that's awesome. So we go out in front of the judge. And he hands this piece of paper to the judge, and the judge does this. He goes, really? Meaning he looks at the piece of paper that I went from 57 and a 35 to driving with my door open, which is a $50 fine. The judge goes, really? He goes, on me. So the judge looks at me and he goes, okay, you've been sentenced, you've been charged with driving with your door open. How do you plead? Because I was a doofus 20-year-old, I was like, guilty? Like, which is not the appropriate response, right? Because the judge is already annoyed that I got knocked down from 57 and a 35 to driving with your door open. He goes, are you sure? So I'm like, yes, absolutely. All the doors are open, every one of them. I was opening them and closing them, and I was totally reckless with the doors. So thank you for laughing. It's nice. You know, it makes me feel good. I appreciate it. So I walked out of the courtroom and I'm like, that was crazy. I just got a $50 fine. I came home. I told my dad, I'm like, yeah, $50 fine. No points driving with your door open. I told him the whole story. And we're laughing because that's what a Jew does, right? Like if there's another Jew, like we always, there was a, there was a, a judge. I don't want to say his name, but there was another Jewish judge in Nassau County. We, and he was like my friend's dad. Everyone wanted to get to him. Like everyone, you know who he is? Yeah, everyone wants to get to that judge. And he happens to be a very good friend of mine's father. And like everyone knows, like if you're like an Orthodox Jewish kid from the five towns and you get in trouble, like hopefully you'll get in front of that judge. 
because like he'll take care of you, you know, because it's 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 hidden, right? It's like we're not supposed like we don't we don't want to say out loud that we run the world because then, you know, the chaver out there believe it. But like between us, like okay, we don't control the weather, but we do con- like the Jews run Hollywood. We're like yeah, we're good at it, you know. Like come on, we don't want to say it out loud. We we have a lot of people about. So I came home and I was my father's like yeah, Jews take care of Jews. And and it was a very profound moment for me. Here's this guy didn't know me from a hole in the wall, some off the derech guy. But he saw, he saw an Orthodox kid, and he was like, okay, it was your first ticket, I'll go easy on you. And it was, on the one hand, I was really scared. And on the other hand, it was like, I felt very taken care of. Do you know what I mean? Like, as soon as he said, I knew I was going to be fine. You know what I mean? Like, it was, it, was, it was scary, and it was serious business, and it could have been a lot of points, and it could have been insurance, and it could have been money. But at the end of the day... As soon as he said it wasn't that I took it less seriously, it's that I also knew it was going to be fine. The simple answer to the question, the famous answer to the question of how is it that we live with the duality of Rosh Hashanah, the simple answer to the question is because the judge is your father. And so it's not, look, can we be honest? If we're being honest, I'll say it out loud, I'll raise my hand, you don't have to, it's all of us. Every one of us did things this year that we're not proud of. Every one of us, you don't have to raise your hand, yeah? It started the summer after 10th grade. Right? Right? Oh. That was very intense. That was very intense. I, I'm not going to say who, but one of you did this. One of you went, oh. It was physical. It was a physical move. It was like I actually punched someone. It was like, oh. You remember when you had coming out of eighth grade the I'll never do, and then summer after tenth grade is when you cross that line, remember? <laughs> right? Everyone remembers. I hold that NCSY Cola only exists to stop boys from doing whatever they're going to do summer after tenth grade. Right? Okay, everyone has their everyone has their version of this, yeah? We come here. This is what's called, by the way, in the world of education, bad classroom management. I just want you to know I'm with you on this, yeah? That's called good classroom management. Thank you very much for doing that. Everyone has this, this line that we've crossed. Everyone came to Tomer Devorah this year. You came to Shalayim Yerakodesh with hopes, with dreams, with aspirations and expectations of, and that was very well said, four in a row, right? With hopes, dreams, expectations, aspirations, right? Everyone has that thing of this is going to be the year. This is going to be the year where I figure that out. This is going to be the year where I stop that behavior. This is going to be the year where I reinvent myself, where nobody's going to think of me that way anymore. I'm going to come back to those judgmental 12th graders, right? Everyone's in America right now. When I come back for Pesach, they're going to sit there and go, she, and this is the word they use, did well. Remember, that? like, what in the world does did well mean? I have no idea. But she did it. Whatever she did, she did well in Tomer Devorah. Every one of us came here because we're looking for that opportunity, or maybe if we're being honest, we're looking for that excuse to be able to say, that life is behind me. But we're about to go to Rosh Hashanah, and maybe there's a feeling of, okay, I have to confront what I did. I have to be able to acknowledge out loud, even if it's only to myself or only to Hashem, I have to be able to say, Lemaisa, this is what I did. And there's a certain trepidation that we have, a certain vulnerability of this might not go well. There's a certain reality of like, look, I did cross that line. There's a certain reality that I have to say that the promises that I made myself about who I was going to be, I didn't necessarily keep. I'm not a bad person, but it is serious, and I am going to be standing before the judge. That's a very real feeling that I think if we're being honest with ourselves, we have. And if we don't have that feeling, it's more likely because we're not being honest with ourselves, because we don't want to admit the vulnerability of what's really happening. 
But there's another part of us. We get up on Rosh Hashanah and we say, cool, the judge is our father. It doesn't make it less serious, but it does mean that you know it's going to be okay. And knowing it's going to be okay doesn't mean that everything is going to be great the following year. It means that whatever the judgment is, the judge has kind eyes. That lawyer, when he said Modav Amixas, I saw kindness in his eyes. You know, when, when, this, when the trooper pulled me over, when the cop pulled me over to the side of the road, I didn't see that kindness. I saw anger. He was in a four-point stance. He pulls me over to the side of the road. He had anger. That guy didn't have any affection for me. If that guy was the judge, I'd be terrified. I wouldn't be able to have two emotions. I wouldn't be able to say, this is serious, but it's also going to be okay. When that guy said, Modav Amixas, I knew it was going to be okay. Because he was one of us. This judge is our father. The simple answer to the question of how we can be gili birada, how we can be trembling and also joyful at the same time, is it serious business, but the judge is also our father. That's the simple answer to the question. That's not why I came here tonight. I don't want to share with you the simple answer to the question. I just want that to be the jumping point for a much more sophisticated question, or sophisticated answers, I should say. The haftorah that we read on the first day of Rosh Hashanah is the haftorah of Chana. Chana davening for a child. It's a very strange story, no? It's a very strange story. What's the story? The story is that she's davening and only her lips are moving and Eli the coin Gadol sees that and he thinks that she's a drunk. So he goes over to her and he basically chastises her and he says, how long are you going to be drunk for? Put away your wine, sober up, right? And Chana says, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm in terrible, terrible pain. And I don't have any drugs or alcohol inside of me, but I'm pouring out my soul before Hashem. There's an obvious question in this story. It's, it's one that it's, it's so painfully obvious that we almost forget to ask it half the time. If we saw somebody at the Kotel, right? I saw on Mrs. Lift's status that you all were at the Kotel, right? So that's how I know what's going on in Tomer Devar. It's just from Mrs. Lift's status. <laughs> so everyone went to the Kotel. Okay, so you went to the Kotel. Imagine you saw somebody crying at the Kotel. Would any of us in the room, we're, we're just simple Jews, we're not a coin gadol, would any of us in the room have gone over to this woman and said, a woman sitting there crying at the kotel, talking without words, would any of us have gone over to her and said, how could you be drunk at the kotel? Nobody in a million years would have done that. Context matters. She's not in the shuk. She, I'm, I'm not saying which shuk. I mean, she's, not at, she's not at a shuk. She's not in a forest, maybe five blocks from here. I'm not saying, I'm just saying if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. In those contexts, maybe somebody would say, you're drunk. Who, who in their right mind comes to such a place and is drunk? And where, it doesn't sound like a Kohen Gadol thing to say, like, say, you're drunk. That's, that's, a, that's a terrible thing to say. Would we, today in the, psych, I'll use psychological language. I'll use female language. I'll use female psychological language. Because I have to know, I have to know who I'm standing in front of. We would have hoped that Ailey would have gone over to her and said, I just want to check in. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm, I want you to know that right now I'm in a very open place of curiosity <laughs> right and I want this to be a safe space for you to share with me what you're experiencing <laughs> would, you be, would you be open to sharing with me a little bit so that I can earn your trust and validate your experience right that's what we was that good yeah. I'm going to be a good husband one day so thank you very much I appreciate it so I have five daughters if you can't tell so um <laughs> So I've gotten good at validating people's experience, even though it's totally wrong. But okay, I say that I'm with you. <laughs> the experience is valid. Okay, so Ailey doesn't do that. He walks in and he says, "Are you drunk?" That's not a, that's not a response that we would say to somebody who's 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 in pain. 
So I saw a very beautiful thing from the Chassam Sofer. An amazing Chassam Sofer. If you came 6,000 miles this year just to hear this Chassam Sofer, it's worth it. We can finish the year after this. It's an amazing Chassam Sofer. Chassam Sofer says, and I want everybody to open their hearts and hear this if they can, even the girls who think that I can't see them right now. I want those girls to hear me also, if they can. The Chassam Sofer says, I want you to take a step back and see what Ailey was seeing. He saw somebody who was in an exceptional amount of pain. That was clear and obvious. He also saw somebody who was absolutely fine. Totally serene, totally calm, totally confident. And he, he was watching it happen. If you've ever seen this, it's an amazing thing to see. Somebody who's able to hold two complex and conflicting emotions at once. That's the definition of emotional maturity. The definition of emotional maturity is you're able to say, I'm not just experiencing one thing, I'm experiencing two things. Those things are equally complex and they're conflicting. So it's like, for example, as a parent, right, you want to be able to hold two complex conflicting emotions at once. Your kid just did something really stupid. They stole your car and crashed it. I had a friend of mine that did that growing up. He stole it, and they at, at, in such a moment, the father is truly <coughs> angry at his child, right? That's the appropriate thing to do. But also in that moment, what is a father? Truly loving of his child. Those are two very complex, and in that moment, they're very conflicting. How we relate, this is very important, girls, how we relate to those complex, conflicting emotions says a lot about us. We have to be large enough to contain multitudes. We have to be big enough to be able to say, I can be very angry with you right now, and I can also let you know that I love you very much. I have to be big enough to say that it's because of my love that I'm so angry, and my anger is also telling me how much I love you. When Ailey saw her, he said, she has to be drunk. Because what happens when people get drunk? When people get drunk, the borders go down, the boundaries go down. And you see people who are drunk, they're laughing one minute and they're crying the next. If you ever have the opportunity, and I hope you don't, if you ever have the opportunity to see boys on Purim. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I hope you haven't seen it, but just in case you have, there's this schizophrenic thing that happens on Purim. You ever, you ever see this? It's, it's like, in a, first of all, I'll tell you where you see it. You, you want to know where you see it? You see it when boys start to sober up. When people say a couch is a three-seater couch, they mean three sober people. A drunk couch, that same three-seater, holds like nine people, comfortably. <laughs> but the second people sober up, what do they start to do? Like, get off of me, you're in my space. Because what happens is when we get drunk, we lose all notions of boundaries and borders. It's what allows us to do really stupid things when we're drunk. You lose your inhibitions. Your inhibitions are built around boundaries and borders. Does that make sense? So when a person is lacking boundaries, they fly from one, from one emotion to the next, and it, 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 it's like happening simultaneously. There's one moment, they're like, Rebbe, yeah, that's why I love, I love the boys who are like doing it appropriately. Like, Rebbe, you saved my life, this is the best year ever. I'm such a Russia, right? It's like they match in the same, I'm like, okay, just get off of me, man. Like, uh, I love you, you're awesome, just vomit over there, you know what I'm saying? Like, it's, because you know it's about to happen because they've lost all sense of boundaries and borders. It's one of the reasons I'm not a big fan of the way that Purim is, is managed today. But the idea, the idea that we lose our sense of like boundaries and borders when we're drunk, Ailey was looking at her and saying, there's no way this woman, this woman, she would have to be like the holiest woman alive to be doing what she's doing. And I want to share with you why this is. I, I said this before, the Sean and Beck girls probably have heard this story, but uh, you chose to come. Um, 
There's a, there's a woman on my block, it's a, it's a terrible story, there's a woman on my block, married over 20 years, didn't have children. The craziest story. She, she lives in a tiny, tiny apartment because what does she need? And in, in Ramah Pechemesh, where I live, women hang out in parks. You know, it's like uh, we all have our houses, but then there's like the park, and that's where like the women go, and the kids are just running around, and the women are watching them. And then they come in and they're like, I'm exhausted from watching them. I was like, I was watching. You just sat on the bench with your friends for the last two hours. Like little kids like come over crying, bleeding. They're like, I hurt myself. They're like, I, okay, go back. You know, like, it's, like, it's a very exhausting job these mothers have. It's the hardest job in the world. Anyway, the, um, I'm, 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 whatever. I don't know why I said that. It's a very hard job. I mean it sincerely. It's a very hard job. So um, women hang out in parks. They hang out with their kids. What do you do if you're a woman who for 20 years doesn't have kids. Where do you go? You don't get to hang out in the park. Because hanging out in the park is like being stabbed in the heart every moment. Every kid that comes over to that mother and says, like, Mommy, I'm thirsty. Mommy, I'm hungry. You know what that woman is doing? I wish I had a kid to come over and say, Mommy, I'm thirsty. Mommy, I'm hungry. So she can't hang out in the park. And because she can't hang out in the park, in a certain way, she's isolated from the other women in the neighborhood. It's, it's the most painful, tragic thing in the world to see. You know what this woman does for a living? She's a ganenet. And everybody sends to this gun. You know why? Because she's the best gun in it. Because if you're a mother and you're a gun in it, you have a certain amount of love that you've already given to your kid. So by the time a kid shows up, you're already lost. Like you've already had to get a kid off to school. You've already had to be up at night with that kid, right? This woman, first of all, she has extended hours because she doesn't have to get back for her kids because she doesn't have any kids to go back to. So she can take the kids starting at 8 o'clock in the morning and I don't think you have to pick up the kids till like 4 o'clock in the afternoon. You get a full day gone out of her. She's incredible, I can't, and, and she's so loving because it's like these are her kids. So 20 years she didn't have children. There's a fellow on my block who's a tremendous tamachacham. His name is Rav Pesson. Rav Pesson was very close, very, very close with Rav Chaim Kanievsky, Zechit Tzadik, for Kadosh Bracha. And he took this couple to Rav Chaim for a bracha. And Rav Chaim said, he, they said, what can we do to be Zeicha to have a child? Rav Chaim said, build a mikvah. Build a mikvah in a town that doesn't have a mikvah. And because they have some money, because they don't have any children, so they, the money that they have, they're able to save, they went ahead and they built a mikvah. I'm not the type of person that tells tzaddik stories or maizim that I don't know about. I know about this story with my own two eyes. I saw it. They built a mikvah. Within the year, they had a child. When they came home from the hospital, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people greeted them. It was everybody on my block, the way my block is situated is there's two blocks, there's like one block like this, it's like a half you, and then there's another block, and then there's like the surrounding block around us. There was nobody who wasn't there. People put up balloons, there was music. When the husband got out of the car, everyone was dancing with him, the baby, the mother walked out of the car with her child. She wasn't, she wasn't smiling, there's no word for what she was doing. She had no face left, it was all just lips. <laughs> it, was, it was just the level of simcha that she exuded was kefi the level of the pain. If for 20 years you've had this level of pain, then the simcha that you have at the end of it is enormous, it's incredible. And I find myself, when I see this dad walking with his little girl in the streets, now she's already a little girl, when I see him, like, what? I'm just like, I just, smi I just like smile. I'm just like, because <laughs> she's the baby we were all davening for, for all of that time. I sent two kids to that Ghana. Everyone wanted her to have a child. She was, in a certain way, I hate to say this, like, of course she's their baby, but she's our baby. Everyone was davening for them, you know? So this was like, it was the most incredible thing. Hannah couldn't have children. She couldn't have children. To be on a level, think about what it took, to be on a level where she could say, Hashem, the level of pain that I'm in 
is something that I can't possibly describe. It's every time I walk out into the streets, it's like being stabbed in the heart repeatedly. I can't go to the Makolet without being stabbed in the heart. But yet, I'm also capable of being totally serene and totally confident because I can share that with you. You know, when we have a place to put our pain, it doesn't eliminate our pain, but it does help, right? Yeah, I heard a great line. I want to share this with you because it's an amazing line. The redemption of pain is community. It's an amazing line. The redemption of pain is community. You know, when you lose, when you lose a loved one in the Jewish community, you know what happens? We bring you food. We don't just bring you a little bit of food. If anyone here has ever sat shiva or had someone in their family who sat shiva, you will know that your house will be filled with all the food. All the food. Not some of the food. All the food. No matter where you are, Jews, if it's like you're in trouble, you're in tragedy, don't worry, we're going to make sure you eat. And how many people come to a shiva? Everybody comes to shiva. And you have to tell the same stories over and over again, and it doesn't seem to matter. Why? Because you're just like telling them anew. And it's like almost like we force the pain out of you. We're like, we're going to share this together as a community. A chaver of mine lost his father. He had lost his mother already. He lost his father. I flew into America to be there for the Shiva, one of my closest friends in the world. And because I was sitting there all day long, I kept hearing the same stories all day long because I was the Shiva guest that didn't leave. In fact, I was sleeping in his house. I just showed up. I'm like, I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. And, and whatever, we're very close friends and we like to have a good time, so a lot of times when he was telling the stories, I would be like this. I'd like... <laughs> and he knew that I heard that story four times already that day. So he's cracking up in the middle of telling the story because I'm sitting there in the back of the room going, hmm. And sometimes I would ask a question like, that I knew. And he's just dying of laughter. His wife threw me out of the shiva house. She's like, get out. And I was like, did I just get thrown out of shiva? Like, I flew 6,000 miles. I just got thrown out. But she's right. I 100% deserve it. I was making him crack up in the middle of shiva. It wasn't the right thing to do. I'll clap al for it again soon. But the... But we don't, it, it's what makes us better, right? It's like, you know if you're in trouble in our community, if anything goes wrong in our community, we're there for you. Anything, even the smallest thing. You're sick, we take care of you. You don't have money, we take care of you. You need food, we take care of you. Tomchei Shabbos, you're, you're fine. The redemption of pain is community. Hannah came to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and she was at a level, it's an incredible level, one that we can't possibly understand. She's at a level where she comes to Hashem and she goes, what's happening to me is indescribable, but I'm okay because I'm here. Do you hear how you can do that? Ailey looks at her and he says, there's no way that that's a human being. There's no way that's a human being. You must be drunk. He can't conceive of someone who's on that level. When she says to him, no, 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 I'm not drunk. I'm just pouring out my pain to Hashem. He goes, your tefillah's for sure going to work. All tefillahs are now modeled after that tefillah. All tefillahs that we have are modeled after Hannah's tefillah. Because it's the ultimate tefillah. It's the tefillah that says, Hashem, what's happening, to my, what's happening in my life is not okay, but I'm okay because I'm with you. And I'm also not okay at the same time. And it's okay to give myself permission to not be okay, and it's okay to give myself permission to be okay. And that's the most incredible, powerful tefillah a person could ever have. Why do we read this on Rosh Hashanah? I want to share with you one of the ideas that I had. There's a million different reasons why we read this on Rosh Hashanah. I want to share with you one of them. Because that's what Rosh Hashanah is. Rosh Hashanah is not only what we said before, which is, this is serious, but it's okay because my father is the judge. It's also holding two complex, conflicting emotions at once. We are a people that can be gili berada. We're a people that could tremble and we could be okay at the same time. It's not that I'm trembling, but I know it's going to be okay because God is my father. I'm trembling 
And when God comes into the room and he's standing in front of me on Yom Adin, it's not that like, oh, cool, it's going to be okay. It's not like, oh, chill, like, it's a Jewish lawyer. No, it's, it's even more than that. It's, I'm okay because in your presence, when I tremble, I know that that's a place of serenity. So I can tremble and be serene at the same time. And that serenity is a, is a joy. It's a joy to be at peace. If I asked every person in this room, if you could press a button and then you would have serenity for the rest of your life, or press another button and it would give you wealth, I guarantee you, you would press the serenity button. It's not because we don't want money. It's because serenity is the most incredible thing in the world, right? Imagine, you, do you remember, um, what's a good example of this? Do you remember before you have a test and you know you're not going to do well on the test? But like, maybe you'll do like, okay. Like, it's not like it's totally over because then you just don't care. Then you know I'm, I'm messed up already. But you know like, where you're like, maybe I'm going to pass. I'm on like that 67, 68 range, right? I got like 66 on three of my regions. You know what I'm saying? Like I, I knew, my father would always say, you know how to study just enough. I was like, yes, I do. I know how to cheat just enough, right? And then, like everyone gets like, uh, thank you for that, by the way. For those of you that did this, right? like, I'm with you. <laughs> the, um, there's, a, there's a feeling of the, like a pit in your stomach. It's, like, it's, it's not just like a generalized anxiety. It's like, ooh, this might not be good. You know what I mean? Yeah, everyone has that, right? You know, I'll give you another example. This is my, one of my favorite examples. You know, uh, you know parent-teacher conferences? Oh, yeah. So you know, right. So you know it's like everyone has their, like, their way of dealing with it. I'm sure some of you did this. You know it's like when your parents come home, make sure to be asleep, or at least pretending to be asleep. Because whatever bad message they got, it's going to be better in the morning. They need to have some, our parents need to, they need some time to sleep on it before they react, right? And then in the morning, they only have you for a certain amount of time. So it's only like 15, 20 minutes where they could possibly, you know, get you in trouble. So it's like always like, mom, I got to go with the bus. And then mom's like, okay, but we're going to talk about this later. If you're really smart, it's like, I would, but I have a chavrusa later that I made up. I didn't learn a word, but I have a chavrusa later with my friend. I am actually sleeping at his house tonight. You want to give yourself as much time as possible between that. Like, you want to get 24 to 48 hours. I used to come home two days later. My parents would be like, we still have to talk about parent-teacher conferences. I'm like, absolutely. You know, like, let's, we'll make a date. You know, like, uh, your, your teachers say you have a lot of potential. <laughs> of course they do, right? Potential means your son is an absolute doofus, you know, who's doing nothing but disrupt the class. The, um, you want to hear a bad story? Yeah, sure, why not? It's a couple days for us, Shana. Who doesn't want to hear a bad story? The, um, my, my, my parents came home when I was in 10th grade. I did a really stupid thing a week before parent-teacher conferences. You want to know what I did? I had two rebellion, one that went till 10.30 in the morning and the other that went from 10.30 to 12. So the, the one who taught from 9 to 10.30, he told us a story. He was the Rosh Masifta. What was the story that he told us? The story was that he had a Rebbe who was a liar and so he made up this thing called a tshuva from the grazam. A, 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 written, a written tshuva, like when you have like a big question from Hagon Rav Zev Meir. There is no such person as the grazam. He was the grazam. His name was Rav Zev Meir. So he told his Rebbe, Rebbe, I saw a tshuva sa grazam. And the Rebbe lied. He's like, yeah, it's a, it's a difficult tshuva. And he told us that he pulled that prank and everybody started laughing. And this Rebbe didn't know, the Rosh Masifta didn't know why everyone was laughing. Because the Rebbe from 1030 to 12 was the biggest liar. And everybody in the school knew that he was a liar. He would make things up left and right. 
So I'm sitting there in my ADHD 15-year-old head going, I'm going to do this next period. So the Rebbe gets up and he says something, and I said, Rebbe, doesn't that go against the Chuvas Agramtsmi? My Hebrew name is Mordechai Tzvi Moshe <laughs> Ben Elimelech Meir Isser Halevi. Yes, yes, it's a lot of names, because that's what happens when your parents are Bali Chuva and they don't know that these things matter, okay? So, so, I, so I get up, I go, Rebbe, doesn't that go against the Chuvas Agramtsmi? And the Rebbe, without skipping a video, goes, yeah, I've seen that Chuvas Agramtsmi many times, I've never really understood it. And the whole class bursts out laughing, and he has no idea what I did. He goes, Berg, get out. So I was like, okay, I was so happy to get thrown out. It's exactly what I wanted, because I went downstairs to the Rosh Masifta's office, where I got thrown out. He said, go see Rabbi Friedman. So I went to the Rosh Masifta's office, and he goes, I knock on the door. He goes, come in. I said, Rabbi Ploni told me to come down here. He goes, what'd you do? I said, I don't know, Rabbi. I just told him that there was a Chuvas Agram Tzmi, and, he, and then everyone started laughing, and he threw me out. And now, that, so he's looking at me, and he knows I've got him right where I want him, right? Because what's he going to do, get me in trouble? He's the one that told me the story, right? He gave me the idea. So I'll never forget. He looks at me, and he goes, that was not the point of that story. I was like, yeah, but it was a great idea. The only problem with my execution of that idea was it was one week before parent-teacher conferences. Wait until a day later. Don't, don't embarrass the Rebbe publicly one week before your parents come. So I am set. I've got this all set up. My parents are going to parent-teacher conferences. I'm going to be going. I'm going to be asleep that night. I already made up with my friend Josh. I was sleeping at his house the next night. I had a good 48 hours before my parents come home because I knew it was going to be epically bad. I knew this wasn't going to be one of those. Your son has a lot of potential. I knew it was going to be much worse than that. So. I hear the garage door opening, so I quickly turned off the television. Girls, there used to be this thing called a television. It had like, it wasn't just a screen, it had like depth to it in the it's back. There was a whole thing the with a box in the back, and there was channels that you turned with your hand. So I used to sleep in such a way that I could quickly turn it off, so my parents came in. So my parents came in, and I quickly turned it off, and I quickly turned off the lights, and I'm like, you know, like lightly snoring, because you don't want to be like too obvious, so I'm like lightly <laughs> snoring. And my dad walks in, and he goes, get up, I know you're up. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh man, he knew all those years. So I turn, he turns on the lights. I'm like, what? What? You know, like deny till you die, right? Like, oh, I was sleeping. I didn't hear you come in. It's like 9:30. You know, like I think I'm to sleep before two, whatever. So my dad, my dad walks in. He goes, I have to tell you the funniest story. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> this is not what I was expecting. What happened? My parents walked in, and this Rebbe looks at them right away, and he goes, you don't even have to tell me who you are. You're the spitting image of your son, the spitting image of your son. My parents sit down, and this Rebbe starts to roast me. <laughs> like, going off. He's barely there in class, and he's, if he's there, he's asleep. And this, like, my parents can believe. And then he starts talking, and you don't understand how much your son is partying, and he's doing this and that, and he's describing in vivid detail all these things that I'm doing. Now, my mother, God bless her soul, is the most naive mother in the world. And she, for some reason, Hashem blessed her with a special faculty that even when I was lying my brains out, she was always like, he's probably telling the truth. Just some sort of, she believed in me in irrational ways. And so my mother, my mother was like hearing this, and my mother's going like, that really doesn't sound like my son. <laughs> and he starts giving her musr. He's like, your son has a problem, and he needs help, and he should probably be going to rehab. And if, and if, you, don't, if you don't get serious about this problem now, it's going to get worse. And this is like a real thing that's happening. And my mother's like, that can't be. That's not him. We would know. And he's like, a lot of parents are in denial. And he is just piling on. And my mother is like going like, and finally my mother goes, 
I grew up as, I didn't grow up as Mordechai, I grew up as Matt. My mother goes, that just doesn't sound like Matt. And the Rebbe's face turns red and he goes, I thought your son was Akiva. <laughs> so, so the truth is, Akiva was doing all of those things. You know, and Akiva was absolutely crazy. I really wasn't doing all those things. And he ended up giving me this amazing report. Oh, he's fine. He's great. Yeah, he's got a lot of potential. You know, like he was, and like all of a sudden, it was a completely different thing. Now, my parents knew that I wasn't great because I had prepared. You know how you have to prepare your parents? You have to go like, look, this Rebbe, he really doesn't like me so much. But it's not, it's not just me. It's the class. You know these moves? Yeah, you've pulled these moves before. It's not just me. It's the class. So... So my, my parents knew that obviously it was going to be bad. So when the Rebbe was like, oh, he's great. He's, he's got a good mind. He's got this. He's got... They knew it was garbage. But it was like, whew. You know, like it worked out well. You know what I hear the, the ironic thing? Akiva got expelled from school like a month later. Yeah? Akiva's a dion today. Akiva's a, the biggest hamachacham coming out of my class. Because sometimes kafir, the way you go that way, is the way that you go that way. Akiva's like an off-the-charts, huge Yerushamayim tamachacham. Maybe I, if I had done a little bit more or whatever, maybe, I will, maybe, I would, maybe I'd also be a dion. I, I was only cutting class, right? So I had a lot of potential. So, but that pit, that pit you get in your stomach, right? Before parent-teacher conferences, you know this anxiety, right? How much better is it when you could share it with a friend? How much better is it when you could be real? You know what every one of us in this room wants, aside from serenity? The other thing we want is belonging. Belonging means I want to be able to say to the person next to me, this is who I am, and you could accept me for who I am. That's an amazing feeling. This is what we want on Rosh Hashanah. We want to come to HaKadosh Baruch Hu and we want to say, if we're being honest, for everybody in the room, if you could open your heart. If we're, we're, we're being honest with Hashem. We're going, Chatasi Avisi Pashati. I did really bad things. I did things I'm not proud of. Like, really not proud of. But can we hold space for each other? Can we be here together? That's what we want from Yom Adin. I, I want to bless us all. I know we're only meeting each other for the first time, but I want, to, I want to bless us together as a community that this Rosh Hashanah, Be'ez Hashem, we should have the capacity to be honest with Hashem and to feel His love in our judgment. Amen.